So Joshua 23, titled Joshua's Farewell to the Leaders. After a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all of Israel, their elders, leaders, judges and officials, and said to them, I am very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an, in, as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and will take and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate, associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routs a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of those, these nations that remain Sorry, But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given to you. Here ends the reading. So I think that um, if we were to start a church library, Ken, we, the first book would be the book about burgers, and I reckon there might be a waiting list for that one. Burgers seem to be the thing. God, we just want to pray for... Um, just the capacity to hear you for the next little while. Lord, I pray also for the capacity just to speak clearly um, and to be able to bring glory to you. Lord, we want to learn from what you have to teach us. We want to understand what you're trying to say to us. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to open our hearts where uh, we need them to be opened. Amen. Amen. So this is the story of um, this is the ongoing story of the Israelites as they're um, as they're taking in the promised land and. Um, we can see we'll have we'll see as we go through this we'll understand a little bit more of what Ken's even talking about with forgetting. So I was thinking about the last couple of weeks. I've been thinking about you know this 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 is a family church you know and um, we've have, we've have young families we have we've kids we have youth and um, and young adults and <clears throat> they're really important, aren't they? We would all say that you would agree with me, right? They're really important, and we want to prepare them. 
Uh, that's what we do. We, we do that in Turbo Kids, we do that in youth. And, and, you know, even in the Thanksgiving service, you might have remembered a few of the testimonies, especially from some of the youth, about how even youth just prepares them for, for doing, uh, doing life. You know, we want to we prepare our kids for that. We want to prepare our kids not just to, to do life, but we want to prepare them to do the same thing that God was preparing his people for, to possess the land, isn't it? I know that's kind of really biblical language, but really that's God's call on us, that we're supposed to take in the land, that we're supposed to be God's witnesses and we're supposed to be God's people. You know, we're supposed to represent the kingdom here, here on earth and um, however that looks. And I guess when we look at church and its programs with, with you know, and, and it's not just the kids are important, we're all important, but that's what we're, we're doing. We want to prepare um, our people to possess the land. We want to equip them to be able to do that. And I'm thinking, you know, in our, in our church and, and in our circles that we operate in, even in our families, in the next generation, they're a privilege, aren't they? They're, um, they're our responsibility as well. And so that's what brought me to this. You know, this is a story of the Israelites. And, and we had at the end of Deuteronomy, you might have remembered, remembered the story of, of, of Moses when he, when he said to the Israelites, look, you're about to go into the promised land now. Um, and so this is what, and, and he wasn't going to go with them. And, and this is what God wants you to know. He wants you to know that you're about to go into the promised land. You know, we can see it from afar. This has been a 40-year journey and I've been with you all that time. This is God speaking. And as you go into the promised land, I'm going to put a choice before you. You can choose death and destruction. You can choose life and prosperity. You remember that, don't you? In the, at the end, you've heard that before. You know, now choose life. And so <clears throat> in Moses' day, uh, as Moses departs and hands over to Joshua, that's what he gives them. And, and they want to choose life. You know, and it was important for God to do that because even though um, his people had seen miracles and even though uh, they'd lived through things that we probably wouldn't see in our lifetime, God knew that, that they would quickly forget that, that, that humans can be fickle, that, we, um, that even these amazing things that God does in our lives, very quickly other things can overtake those sorts of <clears throat> those things as well. Excuse me, my throat's a bit funny. And, and Moses says, choose who you will serve. And, and it's important that he does that because they're about to take possession of the promised land. This is, this is God's gift. They're about to step into this land and they're about to own it. They're about to be God there. They're about to sort of take in this gift of, of the promised land. They're about to rule in this promised land. So Joshua takes over. He takes the Israelites into all these battles, if you read a little bit about it, into the promised land. And the people saw God do stacks of more miraculous things. The people saw God go before them. The people saw God you know, empower them beyond their, their human power to be able to take in the land. And people saw the fruitfulness of the land and how great it was. And they went on to conquer many nations and to take in much land. And uh, we know that as we read through the stories. So now we jump to the end of Joshua's life. So that was a quick, and now I'm going to get us up to where we are. Joshua gathers the Israelites to give them some advice in Joshua 23. He, he gets them together and he says things like, you know, I'm on my way out. You know, old age is creeping up, whatever language he used in those days. You know, my days are numbered, I'm about to go and, and God's going to take me. And so this is what I want to tell you. And um, You're in the land and, and we're in, but there's more to go. There's, there's so much more. There's a few more nations to take and there's more of it to do. And, and, and I want you to know, I want you to know, 
I want you to know what God, how God wants you to live in the land, what it's going to look like to live and be God's people in, in the land, the, the promised land, this, this land that God gave you. <clears throat> and if you were to... Thanks, Rob. I'm going to clear my throat. Thanks for that. <clears throat> and if you were to have a quick look at what we read... You know, he, he goes through that. He says in verse 3, you've seen all that God's done for you. You're eyewitnesses. You, you've, you've, you've seen it. It's not like it's... I'm not telling you stories. And then he says in verse 6, be careful to obey everything. Not, not some, but everything. And in verse 7, he says, don't mix with the nations. Don't, don't intermix. Don't ally yourself with them. Don't, uh, don't do that. And verse 8, he says, be faithful to God. Verse 11, he said, make sure that you always love God. And in verse 12 and 13, he starts talking about that mixing and diluting, mixing with them and intermarrying and, and um, that those things. I don't want you to do that. And so I want you to see um, that, that, that God was really specific. He wasn't sort of glib or, or vague and said, you know what, I want you to go into the promised land. I want you to be the best God people you can. You know, do the best that you can. He was really specific. He, he, he didn't say that. He was really specific about This is what it looks like. You know, you, you've got to be ultra committed. Uh, you can't mix with these people. You can't allow that uh, to happen. And, and you can't intermarry. And you have to be faithful to me. And you've got to obey everything. Not just most things or, or some things or as, as best as you can because, you know, it got busy at home or, or school was, you know, whatever. And that's what, that's what Joshua was doing in 23. And then in 24, Joshua reminds them of the details and how God helped them. And I, I want to read, I've got, I've got it up there. I want to read um, verse 24, verse 14 to 24. And if we've got that on the screen there, um, I'll read that with you. And this is what he says. He says, um, we're coming, 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 I think. If not, you might just have to really listen. Oh, fancy that instead of read. Here we go. Here we go. Verse 20, uh, chapter 24. So this is after 23. He's still around. He hasn't, you know, his days are probably a little, little more numbered, but he hasn't gone yet. And he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites, which is one of the nations they were taking in, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. They're those famous words, aren't they, where Joshua says, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. Then the people said, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods, it was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. <laughs> That's a threat, isn't it? But the people said to Joshua, No, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you chose to serve the Lord. 
Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. The people sound pretty convinced there, don't they? They've got this. You know, they are not going to mess this up, right? You don't look really convinced. Everyone's looking at me thinking, there's a trick here somewhere. (laughs) Now fear God. Now the famous verse, choose today. The people promised we would never turn away or water it down. Are you kidding? It's kind of like, are you kidding? Of course we're going to do this. We saw, you know, seriously, do you even need to ask? And after Joshua's death, they begin well, don't they? All these people, they're they're serious. They're going to do this. They've seen God work and they're seeing him still work. But despite the specifics, despite God being so clear and even them astoundingly, and I say astoundingly and I shouldn't because we laugh at these. These are silly people, aren't they, sometimes? We would never do stuff like this, right? Of course not. Astoundingly, a few tribes decide that maybe it's not all that serious to strictly adhere to the plan. That maybe near enough is good enough, close enough is good enough. Maybe if we just do most of it, it'll be okay. And then you go into Judges, and I haven't got this up there, but just listen to this. Judges 1 verse 27. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tana or Dor or all these names and their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites. They were determined to live in that land. When the Israelites became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. And it goes on, another few tribes. But then they married and they intermarried. And so we've got a few in the same generation who decided, hmm, maybe we'll allow some people to stay because, you know, they work hard. And, and maybe we might intermarry because those Amorite chicks are hot. You know, we can't, you know, maybe we'll intermarry and, and you know, okay, so we'll, we'll make them forced labour. We'll, we'll have them live with us. <laughs> they tried to live in two worlds. They tried to do two things, two sets of values, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They tried to, to integrate and maybe um, try to see if they could make it work with everybody and, you know, harmony and we'll, we'll sit together and sing Kumbaya because all roads lead to the same place, right? Why, why would they do that? Maybe God's rules were just too absolute. Maybe when they got into these countries and these lands and they started to say that they needed to love God and this is what it looked like, maybe that was really unpopular and it wasn't very cool to do that sort of stuff. Maybe they just didn't want to stand out. Maybe they actually did want to fit in and maybe, the, the, you know, maybe they were good-looking people and, and I don't know. So my question is, what happens to the next generation? Remember I started with... Why do we teach the next generation? What happened to the next generation? And this we do have on the screen. I want you to read with me Judges chapter 2, verse 6 to 15. And when you read it like this, when you tell a story like this, it's astounding, isn't it? Because this is not like hundreds of years. Okay? After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel, apart from those other tribes. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance 
at Timnah, Hereth, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I'm going to read that again. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to the enemies all around them who were no longer able to resist. They were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. It's just one generation. So you might think, this new generation, how bad are they? Right? They, but why did they not know anything about the Lord? Why did, who, who, whose fault was that? You know, that's The next generation grew up that didn't know God and what he'd done. They followed the ways of the people they mixed with. They ended up getting defeated by the enemies. They were unable to stand against the challenges of, of their world. And, and God actually gave them to the enemies. God actually empowered their enemies to defeat them because he promised. And after this, if you keep reading, it's actually really good reading if you want to read it like as a narrative, Joshua and Judges. After this, you keep reading, you go into the era of the Judges. I call it the yo-yo era, whether the judge up and judge down. And, and next week, I'm actually going to talk about some of those Judges and see, the, see how they just went, like a, like a um, what do you call that? That's a roller coaster, that's the thing. One of them went bad this week, didn't they, in Queensland? So my question is... What shaped the spiritual and kingdom values of the next generation? What or who? And if you look at this generation, their values, what shaped their spiritual values? Well, it was the compromise of the generation before them. The generation before them being unwilling to be absolutely committed to God's direction. And what was the... What was the opposition or, or the nemesis to the promised land? If, if, if this is what God said, this is what the promised land looks like and this is how we live in that, what was the opposition to that? And I think it was the whole me and self. And I look at my life and, and our lives and our church and, and our young people and perhaps our world and I think, what, what can we learn from this? What can we understand from this? Because this is not... This is not abnormal. This is normal human behavior, isn't it? This is, this is how we work. And maybe it's normal, sinful human behavior. What can we learn from this? You know, I started thinking, I'm actually a dual citizen. Some of you know that, some of you don't. I'm, I'm, I'm a dual citizen of Australia and the Netherlands. You know, I hold passports to both. I'm a citizen to both. I have rights in both countries. But they have different cultures and different values, the two different nations. You know, there's a bit of a bleed in our churches because of all the Dutch names and all that sort of stuff, granted. But there is, there is different cultures. I started thinking, I can really only do justice, real justice, to one. I can't be passionately Australian. Some would argue I'm not because I don't like AFL. 
and Dutch at the same time. I can't be passionately two, two cultures and two nations and two nationalities. And neither can we be passionate followers of Jesus and his commands. We can't be passionately or, or committedly obedient to the way that God calls us to live and follow the world and its values as well. It, it doesn't work. It, it, you know, we try to make it work and we get ourselves in all sorts of fixes because we try that, but it doesn't work. We can't possess two lands. We either possess the promise that God gave us to take in the land that we live in, and whether that looks like Scoresby or whether that looks like somewhere in Melbourne or somewhere in the world or even your family. You, we can't possess that land and then possess the worldly values as well. See, our values and our lifestyle and our commitments or lack of them will shape the way our children, and not just biological children, but even spiritual children here, guys. I'm not just talking, you know, if you're just thinking, well, our kids are gone. I can cruise for the rest of this sermon. Our values and our lifestyle and our commitments will shape the way our children see following Jesus. For instance, serving, commitment, lifestyle choices. These things, our values, they will determine what God's call to possess the land looks like in the eyes of the people that we're, that we're teaching that are coming up after us. We will show them what it looks like to possess the land, to, to serve. And that will determine their actions when they take their place in the world. See, and every time we try to possess two lands, every time we do that, even just a bit or even in a small way, we're being part of what I call, and, and that's why I've called this a generational slide. Let me explain. When we lower the bar or when we model values that, that even just a little bit lower the standard, we perpetuate that percentage slide. And um, I was trying to think of examples, and, and I'm, I'm, these, these, are not, this is, these are not anointed examples, so please don't, you know. Um, I'm trying to think of, of how it works, and you'll get this. You know, when I was a kid, and um, that wasn't that long ago, it was a while ago. When I was a kid, you know, going to church, for instance, we went to church twice every Sunday. It was a non-negotiable. Who remembers that? Kind of honest, you know, here we go. It was a non-negotiable. You went to church every Sunday, you know, but my friends have got a skiing trip. We're going to the snow. Too bad, we're going to church. But this is on. I was up late last night. To, my mother said to me, I don't care what time you come in on Sunday mornings. You know, if you come in at four, I am waking you up and you are going to church. You come in whatever time you like and I don't care what you did the night before. I've got some people laughing over here. How many parents have done that, you know? That was just, and it was a given. It was just a, and then my generation was kind of, so here's the slide. That's 100, so let's, let's call that 100%. In my generation, we kind of sort of said, hmm, look, it's all right. You know, the occasional skiing trip because your friends are going here, or the occasional thing, we can, we can skip church here. And, and now, look, I'm not saying church is holy, but I'm just giving you an example. We can, we can do that. And so we've kind of given away maybe, you know, that generation gave away maybe 10, 15, 20% of the value of 100%. The next generation, we're in a generation now where it's okay if you rock up to church two or three out of four or five. It is. Seriously, I talk to people who, that's pretty good. I'm pretty committed. I'm pretty regular at church. I get, I get there at least a couple of times a month. And do you see how something, only one or two generations, that's what I call a generational slide, how in steps it can just lose its value so fast. We, um, my parents were right into commitment. If you haven't already, well, Joel will tell you that you know, that's kind of come through a bit. We played tennis. I played tennis as a kid. 
You know, and so tennis training was twice a week. Joel, I played pretty good tennis, you know. Tennis training was twice a week. And as a kid, we lived, and I swear, we lived, and I'm, this is true, we lived three houses away from the local swimming pool and we had, um, we had like season tickets so you could go in and out of the pool all the time. So as kids, when it was hot, we were always in the swimming pool. We'd come home and have dinner and we'd go because the pool would be open until 9 o'clock at night or whatever. But training was on two nights a week after school and it was like a four-kilometre bike ride and it was 38 degrees and, oh, mum, you know, can we just skip and go? No, you committed, you're, playing, you're going to tennis training. Here's the only kid, the, the, the only stupid kid to be standing on this concrete tennis court in 38 degrees where everyone else is swimming. <laughs> you know, I think of some of those examples and sometimes I, I probably cursed my parents but other times I think, wow, okay, all right. You know, you think about things like, anyway, uh, there's, there's lots of examples. I could talk about giving, how, you know, my parents, my dad would come home and on, on whatever night it was, it might have been a Thursday, his pay would come. And in those days, you actually got cash. Any one of you, like, do you guys know what cash looks like? You know, you actually got cash in an envelope, you know. And they would put it out on the table and my mother would take us whatever they decided and that would go. And I knew where it was as a kid. It was under, under her jumpers in their, in their wardrobe. Was, that was the church money. You know, I never took it. I can see you. Know, I can see you. Know. But that's what they did. It was. It was just no. There was no no question. And then the rest was used for. Now my dad went through. They in the SEC back in those days. They had an eleven week strike where my parents pretty much went broke. And and I actually left school to help them to sort it out because my brother was at university. But never, never, never did that change. That came every time, any time. Because that's what God said. You know, I think, I don't want to do the how many percentages. But seriously, you know, in my generations, you know, we, we would, we, we, you know, yeah, you know, my, we would give. But, you know, sometimes it's a little bit hard or, you know, the mortgage was a bit bigger and you might have to, you know. And in the, in the generation we're growing up now, the whole thing of giving, there's so much we have to do. We have to get to this party. We've got to do, you know, this is, life costs so much, you know. That's what I mean when I talk about the generational slide, how quickly a value can be compromised. Now, some of those things probably in my parents' generation weren't necessarily annoying to things. Maybe they didn't actually have it all right all the time. But, you know, our church today faces challenges. Churches today face challenges relating to society's values, how we influence them. You know, absolutes don't fit in our culture. When you come with absolutes, that's really almost offensive to the world. God was pretty absolute. Relationships, you know, forgiveness, grace, respect, honour, commitment, you know, financially stepping up, taking responsibility in, in your church circles or in, 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 the, um, in your faith circles, evangelism, reaching out, passionate, sacrificial lifestyles, following Jesus and his commands and prioritizing God over yourself. These are all challenges that we have in our churches nowadays, you know, and we see them, as particularly when you're in leadership. You, you see that playing out in your own life and you see that playing out in the lives of, of people in your church. And, you know, our youth culture, and I think about young people and I do a bit with young adults and, and you guys work with youth and kids and, you know, we face challenges relating to relationships and purity and social Values and norms, you know, drinking, respect, violence, 
ethics, all those hot topics that, that you, you don't want to talk about or you do want to, you know. The challenge of standing out and being different. Young people don't really want to do that. They don't want to be different, you know. It's not cool. You know, absolutes are unpopular. Um, and even in, you see that even in the Christian world where you get, you know, Christian young people. I know I'm being really old-fashioned here. In Christian youth culture, we have challenges with work ethic and responsibility for others. You know, this whole sense of having to work hard and being responsible for others, not just for yourself and taking responsibility. Family and social responsibility, like you're growing up in a world that you are responsible for. God called you to be responsible for it, not just you. Commitment to relationships and, and, and even church events and church and, and how to set priorities and, and how that's modelled. And I could go on. You know, we face these churches in youth, but are these challenges in our young people, but also in our own churches? Prayer, leadership, ministry opportunities. Oh, I've got too little time. You know, my priorities are different. Financial shortfalls. Yeah, my priorities are different. I need more. Commitment. I'm too busy to help. I've got too much on. I'm speaking to myself as well. This is me as well. But this is the context that our kids and our young people grow up in. In the world, the context socially, the context in church and faith realms. Because, you know, and we all know this intellectually, but I'm going to say it anyway. Young people, kids, people that follow us, don't do what we say, they do what we do. We can have the most brilliant sermons. We can do the greatest life groups and have these fantastic clips and have these wonderful prayer times and that sort of stuff. But people don't do what we say. They, particularly people that are we influence, they do what we do. What we do speaks loudest and that's what transfers into their life. And so like I said, I can really only give myself to one nationality or one cause. It's me or Christ. For me... I see me too much in the picture. And what about you? What about us? The answer to that question is what the generation sees and mimics. Not only that, they take it a step further. There's that slide. You know, what was okay, now that's... If we want to see our kids and our young people, and if we want to see the kingdom of God and the church actually grow and be effective... We need to take a good look at our own values, lifestyles, examples. And I was challenged by this, that we have to give deep spiritual roots to the next generation because it's going to get harder. We have to give deep spiritual roots to the next generation, roots that model sacrificial commitment, sacrificial service, readiness to follow Christ in the way that he said. And that means carrying our cross sometimes. I don't think it's going to get easier for the next generation to serve God and to possess the land. I actually think it's going to get harder. And we have a responsibility to equip them for that. And I don't see that happening a lot of the time, generally. Where we haven't done that, we need to be honest, repent and commit to encouraging change. 
Because there isn't another people of God that are going to take in the land. We're it. There isn't another group that will do it if we don't. And it's not the next generation. It's not just the paid staff that are supposed to do this well or the Christian school teachers or the youth leaders or the pastors. It's, it's us. It's all of us. It's, it's you and me. We want our children, our young people and our church to have a firm sense of kingdom values that honour and promote God's character so that they can shape and influence the world that they live in. And to do that, we've got to go back to what God said, what Jesus said. And I was reminded this week about, you know the story of the rich young ruler, don't you? Remember the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, what have I got to do to get into heaven? And what is this, this new kingdom? And, and, um, and, and, and he'd done a whole lot of stuff. You know, I did this right. I went to church, I put the chairs out, I, do, I went to catechism, I went to, you know, I did a mission trip and I, you know, I did all, you know, and... and, and he said to Jesus, I've done it all, you know, I've done all that, you know. What did Jesus say to him? Anyone remember? He first said to him that he first looked at him and loved him. If you read the Mark version, that's great because he, you know, there's grace, he loves us. Jesus said, go and sell all you possess. Not some. Go and sell all that you possess. The things that are possessing you, get rid of them all so that you can follow me. I didn't write that, that's in there. didn't say go and get rid of, you know, most. He didn't say the Israelites, you know, look, you know he said keep all my, not, not keep most of my commands, keep them all. And for me, this is a, this is a, really, a, a really important lesson, I think, for us as, as Christians, not just even as a church here. And it's not, it's not a lesson because we're doing things badly. But understanding that we have the privilege, we have the privilege and we have the responsibility to pass on something to the next generation that can change their world. And if we pass on something that's half good or that half works, then we're going to equip them half for the task. And none of us would do that. We wouldn't want to do that with our kids when they're training for school or we're teaching our... We don't, you know, when we're teaching our young 16 or 17-year-old to drive, just say, look, get most of it right. We'd never do that, would we? Because the alternative is death. We understand that. You know, or, you know, when you go to, when you go to school, you know, just get most of it right. And when you build a house, Rob, just get most of the bits right, you know? Hopefully you won't be around when the roof falls on them later on or something, you know. We know it. That's what Jesus has got to say. Get this right. When you go into the land, make sure you're totally committed to loving me. Make sure that this is what you do. Whatever possessing land looks like for us, let's make sure we do it. You know, we make mistakes though. We're not brilliant at everything, are we? We like to think we are and, and you know, we like to aim and that's a good thing, but, but we're not. And that's where grace comes in. And that's where we understand that God sent his son Jesus to die so that we would experience grace, that we would experience the fact that, that, we would experience the fact that, that God loves us, that God, even though we get most of it right sometimes, or not even most of it, even though we, we fail. And, and if you read on, you will see 
that even though God handed them over, and next week we'll see that. Next week, it's not going to be about how stupid the people are. Next week, the t- title of the sermon is going to be just how loving and gracious God is. You'll see that every time they, they get seven judges, and you'll see that every time they go down, God's grace, he picks them up again. And he reestablishes them. You know, and, and that's what he did for us. You know, we don't get it right, but he sent Jesus and, and he picked us up again. And he reestablishes us. And he says, you're all right. You're in. You, you belong. You're in a relationship with me. You see, the only one to say that he would serve the Lord and then actually do it perfectly was Jesus, wasn't he? He was the only one that said, this is what I'm going to do and this is where I'm going. And, and, and he did it. There was no compromise there. There was no middle ground. There was no other way. He remained 100%. He, there was no slide there. And why was that? Because we, you and I, were the object of his service, his passion, his love. And that's what we celebrate this morning. We're going to celebrate Lord's Supper. And basically, we're going to, we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus, because he loved us, because he was 100% committed to doing what God called him to do, because he wanted us to possess the land, he came and gave himself up for us. He traded his own glory so that we could live in glory. He served and obeyed his Father perfectly to redeem us and to set us free. Free to live in relationship with him and free to serve. Even though we may not have, you know, you'll see again with the people, every, every time they may not have done it right, it wasn't a case of, well, all right, I'll let you, I'll give you, you know, you won't be manager again, I'm going to make it. No, it was back into full standing with God and God released them again as his people. Jesus made it clear that he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that his body would be broken and his blood would be shed so that ours didn't have to be. He would defeat death, which is what the enemy had in store for us. And he exchanged it for life for you and me. He did that for you, he did that for me out of love. And for me, I wish it was true more often, but for me that's a great incentive, isn't it? To do the same. To make a decision again, you know, I, I want to go 100%. I want to be committed to loving God the way that he wants me to and to, to representing him the way that he wants me to. To be the same example, albeit in my humanness. If you know that, if you know that Jesus did that for you, if, if that's something that you share in, that you know that, that Jesus exchanged his life for yours, that the death you were supposed to die he took on if you know that and you understand and believe that jesus is your savior and you've chosen to belong to him then i want to invite you to celebrate with us today we're going to celebrate lord's supper and i want you to invite i want to invite you to celebrate to remember and to reflect on what jesus did to celebrate what jesus did yes what jesus did was painful and when we reflect on his death it's kind of oh that would have been really really hard and and we get sad about that that jesus had to do that but the flip side is is how cool is that, that Jesus did that for us? How cool that we're out the other side of that as redeemed people because his blood was shed. So I'm just gonna, we're just going to have one station today. I'm just going to call two of the elders out here. And uh, before I read this, I'll get Joel and Joel. It's going to be the Joel show front there. And um, so I'll, in a minute, I'll give you guys the thing. So... Just let me, in, in the word, Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he, he took bread and, um, and when he'd given thanks, when he'd prayed over it, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Break bread. 
together in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he then he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant uh, that I'm establishing in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and, and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And I often used to wonder about that language, you proclaim the Lord's death. I don't want to do that. I don't want to say, you know, it's not, but that's not the, it, the language. It's, not, it's just you're remembering, you're proclaiming it to yourself. You're, just, you're, you're receiving the Lord's death and saying, hey, that was for me. And Jesus went on, he said, you know, whoever eats and drinks of, uh, of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone should examine themselves before they eat. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment. And so I like to do this, and, and I want to challenge you to this. just going to give you 30 seconds just to, just to pray. And just to ponder, and uh, if there's something you need to give to the Lord, if there's something you need to, to deal with, um, just to do that. God, we thank you that your word says that there is now no condemnation for us when we believe and we trust in you, when we receive your death and resurrection for ourselves. And we thank you for that. We thank you that your forgiveness is full and free. And we thank you that we can celebrate in your presence this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to have the guys come and stand in the middle there. And if you just want to filter into the aisles and come and grab uh, some bread and, um, and one of the cups and then sit down and then we'll all um, we'll do it together once we're all seated. So the bread which we break is a sharing of the body of Christ. Take it, eat, remember and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. The cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks is the sharing of the blood of Christ. Take it, drink it, remember and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus was poured out for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. <coughs> Paul said to us in Romans, you see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to get it right first. It wasn't like, you know, guys, I'll get up on the cross if you just sort this out. And then we'll do that. While we were still sinning, while we're still sinning, Christ died for us. And since we've now been justified... How much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? Isn't that a great message? Now, while we were still sinners, that's grace. That Christ died for us. We're going to um, close with a song this morning. I'll just invite the worship team up, and then we're going to close off the service. Thanks for your patience reading all of those uh, stories and scriptures and um, yeah I just pray that um, what we heard this morning and what we talked about this morning would would grow and take seed in our lives and particularly in our young people and the way that we um, and in the world that we live in the place that we grow